Our topic tonight, the hellfire, uh, is open to many interpretations. Different denominations have different ideas and concepts of what the hellfire is about. We touched a little bit on it last time. We're going to talk some more about it tonight. And let's investigate what the Bible has to say on the subject. It's not so much what we may think. What does the Bible think? What does the Bible say? And as we open, our topic for tonight is Revelation's Lake of Fire. Let's begin with prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, as we explore this subject tonight, we pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We know the devil doesn't like us discussing this subject. He'll do everything to prevent it. But Lord, we we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us, lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. A salesman noticed that the lady beside him was a little bit different. He couldn't quite put his finger on it. She looked like a very pretty lady, and she was dressed well. And before long, they began to talk back and forth, but there was something different about her. And finally, as they began to talk, and they began to swing around to spiritual topics, he said to her, "Um, what church do you attend? And she indicated, oh, Well, I don't go to church anymore. I used to, but I don't go anymore. Well, actually, I almost don't go anymore. And he didn't quite understand what she was saying. And they talked a little bit more. And then she repeated the same thing. I almost go, but she really didn't commit herself. Finally, he said to her, oh, What do you mean you almost went to church? She said, well, when I was a little girl, I used to go to church. And every week, my pastor would get up and he would talk about the hellfire and how the wicked, those who don't love the Lord, they're going to go to the hellfire and they're going to burn and they're going to burn for thousands of years and going to be tortured in writhing in pain through all that time. And as she thought about this and listened to it week after week, she said, what kind of a God is it who would torture people that length of time? What kind of a God would cause that kind of agony? And she said, so I turned away from Christianity. She said, I am now a witch. And I meet with the coven. And we go to quote-unquote church, but it's a church of wicker or witchcraft. And so we find that this concept, this popular doctrine of hell as it is taught today has actually created more atheists in the world than almost any other Christian teaching or doctrine you can think of. Why? Because it directly reflects on the character of God. It impacts the way we see God. As we look at the scriptures, we need to understand what God says about his own character. And as it tells on the screen, in 1 John 4, 8, it says, God is what? Love. When we talked about the commandments... We mentioned that the first tablet is our love for God. The second set of commandments is our love for our fellow man. But behind them both is love, the character of God. The reflection of the modern concept of hell has a tremendous impact upon the way we view God. And that, in turn, impacts on how we view one another. Peter wrote, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. God wants everyone to be saved. Now catch that, because that's an extremely important subject. 
God wants everyone to be saved. But he does honor our power of choice. And as we look in our text for tonight, I want to go to Matthew 10.28. And notice what it says. It talks in here about, well, let's read it. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Here again, we go back to the word fear. We are to respect the one who is capable of annihilating us, who is capable of our being out of existence forever. But does that mean that God wants us to be destroyed? No. For one thing, notice it says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but they can't kill the breath of God, the spirit of God. ISIS can take your life, slit your throat. They can take your body, but they cannot take away your relationship with God, your salvation with God. And notice also, and by the way, another expression for the uh, soul of man is your body and your breath make up your being and your psyche, the way you think, oh, my oh, my soul is down today. What you're saying is you're, you're, you're feeling blue, right? Your attitudes, that's all a part of it. But that's a different use of the word. But rather, respect, honor, praise him who is able. He has the power to destroy you, not only soul and body, but both soul and body in the hellfire. Now, it's interesting that we said earlier, when a person dies, his body goes back to the ground and the breath goes back to God. Why? Because when Jesus comes again, he's going to resuscitate the righteous dead. And later on, he even resuscitates the wicked for their resurrection, as we learned of the two resurrections. But at the final execution, when the body of the wicked is destroyed, God doesn't even take their breath back again. He doesn't take the breath back. Even their breath, is destroyed with their body in the second death. You see. Why? Because he has no intention of reviving them again. As we look at this, I want you to know that the word hell, as it's used in the Bible, especially the King James, there are four different words that are translated in the Bible as hell. And they all have different meanings. For instance, in the Old Testament, when you see the word hell used, It's the word Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. It's the grave. And last I checked, graves were rather cold. They're not hot, unless you're near a volcano or something. But the grave is cold. So how can they burn in the grave? Okay. In the New Testament, there are actually three words that are used. The first one is Hades. That's the most common word. People say, oh, it's hot as Hades in here. You better get a sweater on. Because Hades is not cold. Hades means the same thing that Sheol does. It means the grave, you see. And then there's another word that's only used once in the the scriptures. That's the word Tartarus. Tartarus simply means outer darkness. When the devil was cast away from the presence of God, he was cast to outer darkness. You know, to be separated from God is in itself hell. And so that's only used once, and Peter is the one who uses it. But outer darkness, lest I know, outer space is kind of chilly out there. So that can't be what he's talking about, what he's talking about consuming people. All right, the last word is Gehenna. Gehenna simply means the fires of the valley of Hinnom. And the, every time this word is used, it's used in reference to the end of time. 
when the final consumption of the wicked. So, it's talking about at the end of the thousand years. So, the hellfire is not burning now and won't be until the end of the thousand years when the wicked are consumed. Now, what does it mean, Gehenna? Outside of the city of Jerusalem, there is a valley. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. It was in this valley that some of the uh, heathen gods were, especially they had one that was terrible, who was made of metal, Chimash. And he was made of Moloch. He was made of different names, different um, uh, languages. But he was made of metal. And he had metal arms. And people used to bring their children and put them in his arms. They heated up. And they put the children in. If the children survived, they'd be accepted by their God. But chances are, what's going to happen? The kids are going to get burned and then they would drop down into the fire pit below. It was a place for burning. I wonder how many children today are being sacrificed to heathen gods because of decisions of their parents not understanding or knowing the true God. It was also when during the time of Josiah and thereafter, we find that that valley became the garbage dump to show their disdain and their disrespect of these heathen gods they would take the garbage out and throw it down there and there they would burn it also criminals were not given a decent burial they would take them and they would toss their bodies down there and while the fire is burning at this end the worms are working on the body at this end. And then when the fire gets over here, there's a new set of worms working on this end. And it symbolized destruction, where it was constant burning up and worms eating things away. This is where the word Gehenna comes from. And what it really means is the garbage dump. When I was in Jerusalem, we took a bus ride down to the valley of Hinnom. And as we went down the curvy road that went down into the bottom of the valley, now they have pretty much filled it in. They still have a section where they continue to burn stuff even today. The other end of it's a baseball diamond. So, you know, I guess if you lose, you know where you're going to go. But anyway, but what do they do? They burn garbage. Now, if it had not been for Joseph of Arimathea, what do you think they would have done with Jesus' body? Cursed is the man who dies on a tree, speaking of the cross. If he was accursed by God, they would have dumped him into the valley of Hinnom. But the scripture says, I won't see my Messiah or my son die and see corruption and to be consumed in hell. This is the hell he's talking about. This is the hot hell. And this hot hell is what the Bible talks about. When Jesus comes back, he's going to burn up all the garbage of the world. The air pollution, the earth pollution, the ground pollution, and even the people pollution. That may be accompanying it. Now, notice these four words are mentioned in the scriptures. And because of the fact that people don't understand that there are more than one word for hell, they sometimes will get strange interpretations of what hell is. Most of the time in the Old Testament, and pretty much all of the Old Testament, whenever it's used, it's used in reference to the grave. And we find that there are graves today. When a person dies, they go down into the grave where they sleep or they rest until they wake up to one or the other of the resurrections. In Matthew thirteen thirty nine, it says that the harvest is the end of the age. 
Jesus talked about a parable where he talks about the, the wheat and the tares. And as we look at that parable, it's Matthew thirteen thirty six. Jesus says that the parable of the tares of the field, and he explains that he is the one who sows the good seed. He's the farmer who sows the good seed. That's the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked. And we find that as a result of this, something has to be done because the good and the bad will come up together. Sometimes they look quite, quite uh, alike. You could have pastors who are really tares. You could have deacons, elders, deaconesses who are tares, but yet they look like they're wheat because tares do look like wheat. And obviously, a person could go through and rip up the tares, but if they do, they've got to be careful that they don't pull out the wheat in the process. So what does the parable teach us? It says that he will let them continue until the time of the harvest. Now, in the time of the harvest, as you look out and you see all these tares mixed in with the wheat, you may say, ah, God made evil as well as good. No, he made the good. There are those who have chosen to be evil. And we find that as he looks at the harvest at the end of the world or the end of the age, as it says here, he says, an enemy has sown these evil seeds. I talked about the Nicolaitans last Saturday. The Nicolaitans, Nicholas started off good as one of the seven deacons. But after a while, his teaching began to lead people astray. So it is possible that we can actually look good on the outside but lead people astray. And finally, at the end of the world, what would happen? The tares would be gathered up to be burned. The wheat would be taken into the kingdom. This talks about the time of separation when Jesus comes. The tares will be gathered together for a future burning while the righteous are gathered together to go to be with the Lord. Notice what it says in Second Peter 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now notice it says that they are reserved the unjust are reserved. Where are they reserved? In their graves. They're reserved there for their final destruction. As we look further, it says in John 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. By their fruit ye shall know them. You see, we are saved by grace, but we are judged by our works. Whether or not those works come from a true faith or from a tear-type faith. Notice in the chart here, the first resurrection is at the second coming of Jesus. The second resurrection is when the holy city descends and we find that the dead who have died with their evil thoughts and intents, they come up to take possession of the holy city, thinking that they can actually do it. But in reality, they cannot. The Lord has made it very clear to us that there is a hellfire. A lot of times people say, well, there's no such thing as hell. There is a hellfire. The Bible talks about it. But it's not burning down in the middle of the earth right now. It's going to burn at the end of the thousand years and it's going to burn on the surface of the earth. It's not just a fantasy. Well, some people have also said, well, is it true that the devil has horns and a tail and he's red 
and he's in charge of hell. Number one, the devil was the beautiful angel at one time. He's very intelligent. When he appeared to Jesus, it doesn't sound like he appeared with horns and tail. He appeared as a beautiful angel. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes those who are, were attracted to, we've got to be careful because sometimes we may actually be talking to someone who could lead us astray, as in the case with Jim Jones, David Koresh, and others. And we find that that concept of the devil with horns and tail and red, if he ever came to you, you'd say, oh, you're the devil, get out of here. But if he comes as a beautiful shining angel, he could deceive you very easily. He might even quote scripture, but quote it out of context. And so we need to be careful of this. A lot of these things have come into us from paganism. That concept of the devil having horns and so forth, that was attributed to Nimrod in the ancient religions. And some of that has crept in in recent centuries. Notice what it says in 2 Peter 3, 7. It says, But the heavens and the earth which are preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Notice it says there that the heavens and the earth are preserved until the end. Why? Because they're going to be purified. They're going to be cleaned up. You know, there are three heavens that are mentioned in the Bible. And I know Dante in his, his book, you know, he, he talks about different levels of heaven and hell. Actually, the scripture talks about three heavens. One is where God lives, wherever that is. It's out there, up over my head. However, if I'm down in China, it's down there, right? I'm on the other side of the globe. All right, it's somewhere out there. That's heaven. The second heaven is where the stars are. Neil Armstrong went out into uh, the heavens where the stars and the planets and so forth are. Then there's the first heavens. The first heaven is where the birds fly. So when Paul said that in his vision he went to the third heaven, he was saying he went before the presence of God or where God lives. He goes to that heaven in his vision. His body may have been down here, but in his vision, his thoughts are up there. And so we find here, when it talks about the perdition of ungodly men, he's going to recreate the earth. He's going to burn away and cleanse the earth from all that defiles it including the atmosphere. And who knows? I don't know. The earth is a part. belongs to the earth, right? The moon belongs to the earth. I don't know if he's going to wipe out Neil Armstrong's footprints up there or not. But all I know is what it tells us in the scripture. Notice what it says here in Revelation 20, verse 9. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and what? Devour them. I can't help it. When I see a piece of cake, I devour it. How much is left? Maybe a few crumbs. But when you devour something, you consume it, right? And so if something is consumed, how much is there going to be left around? Not a whole lot, my friends. And the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Those who had chosen to be with Satan. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. Two individuals who are regarded as probably the worst villains in modern times at least. And Hitler and Stalin... Even they put their victims out of misery. They, they killed them and put them out of their misery. They tortured them first. 
but at least they put them out of existence. For God to let someone go for century after century burning, what does that say about the character of God? It gives a wrong image. Stop and think. Also, Cain killed one man 6,000 years ago. He killed one man. And Adolf Hitler kills 6 million. 6 million people. Okay? Now, Cain has been, for killing one man, has been burning for the last 6,000 years. Adolf has only, for killing six million, has only been burning for, what's 1940s up till now, um, 60, 70 years. Is this, is this equitable judgment? You can see the unfairness of the modern concept of hell. The second coming of Jesus, God will make all things right, and every man will receive his just reward, whether it's good or evil. And we need to be careful how we misrepresent the character of God. 1 John 5, 12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, if the people are wicked, am I correct in assuming that they don't have the Son of God in their heart or in their lives? All right, if they don't have the Son of God in their hearts or lives, how is it that they get to live a million years, even if it's in the hellfire? You see, they're still alive, if that's the case. But what's it say? If they don't have the Son of God in their lives, they don't have life. Well, the concept of hell says they do have life. They just live on through the centuries burning. But they still get to live. Remember what I said before, bad breath is better than no breath at all. And here they are, even if it's bad circumstances, they still have the breath of life in them, according to the modern concept of hell, you see. And so it contradicts what the scripture says. Because the scripture says, no, the wicked will not have life. Why? Because God wants to bring an end to this, this whole sin problem. He doesn't want it to go on and on. Not only that, too, you've heard people say, well, my immortal soul. What was the scripture say? The soul that sinneth shall, what? Die. Well, the word immortal means you can't die. Now, immortality is what God will give us when Jesus comes back. Snap of the finger, the blink of the eye. Those who come up out of the grave, they will be transformed. Those who are alive when he comes and are righteous, they will be transformed. They will receive immortality. But the scripture tells us that there's only one who's immortal, and that's God. And when he comes back, then he shares that immortality with us. But The wicked, whether they're in their graves or alive when Jesus comes, they'll die. Which means they can't be immortal. Not only that too, but in the second resurrection when they come up, they're going to die again. So the wicked never have immortality. But yet there are those who teach that and preach that. How many funerals have you ever been to where the preacher preached anybody to hell. Have you ever noticed everybody gets to be preached to go to heaven? Even when you knew they were real rascals, they still made it. There was only one funeral I've ever been to. It was in Michigan in a city that's within a thousand miles of here. There was one fellow who lived kind of a uh, rough life, but he gave his heart to the Lord and I believe that he had a true conversion experience. But when his pastor would come to see him, he would say, you know, pastor, you're not telling the people the truth about death and about hell. And pastor, you have an obligation to tell them the truth because 
their future is based on what you are telling them. And the pastor did not like it. And finally, when the man died, the preacher, when he got up to give the funeral talk, he said, well, I hope John repented because the way he was going, I can't guarantee he's going to make it into the kingdom. He didn't use the word, but what were the alternatives? He was preaching him to warmer climates, you see. But that's the only one I've ever been at. And this is a man I believe will be in the kingdom. But he preached him to other areas. And yet, others, they preach into heaven. Look at Romans six twenty-three. The wages of sin is death. It's not eternal life in a burning fire. And as I mentioned before, the devil is not in charge of hell. He's the chief log in the fire. Okay? Now, in Revelation 20, verse 14, it talks about what happens after the um, thousand years has passed. It talks about the second death. What will happen in the second death? Let's investigate that a little bit further because we explored it in general up to this point. Let's see what Ezekiel says. In Ezekiel 28, verse 18, Therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to what? Ashes upon the earth in the sight of all those who saw you. Who are the ones that saw them? Not only the other people that are burning, but also the people inside the city. They can see through the glass. I mean, the the transparent walls. And notice, the fire comes down in the midst of them. Quite frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if they start burning from the inside out. From the wickedness of their hearts. But I can't prove that, so don't hold me to it. It devoured you, and it turned you to ashes. Now remember what it says. It says, upon the earth. Not down underneath the ground, but on the breath of the earth. Why? Because if it turns you to ashes, that implies that there's nothing left. You go back to the elements that you came from. In plain words, death is the reverse of creation. And finally, when the Lord opens the door to let the saints go out into the new earth, They're walking on the same carbon and uh, calcium and whatever elements that you went back to. They're walking on what was once ashes of the wicked. They will be no more. Look at Malachi 4, 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly shall be as stubble. And the day in which the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. The root and the branch. Satan is the root of all evil. And those who practice his lies are the branches. Remember, Jesus said that he was the root and the vine and the the, uh, branches were the believers. The same thing with, with Satan. He's the root of all evil. And those who follow him are following his example. Look in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. Oh, praise God, when all the wickedness and sorrow. I have done so many funerals. I'm ashamed to say I've probably buried as many, if not more, people than I've baptized. And that's not the way the preacher is supposed to go. He's supposed to go the other way. (laughs) 
But there are so many people that I know that I've had to to lay to rest, quite frankly, including my own mother and father and stepmother and mother-in-law and father-in-law. I, I'm getting tired of funerals. What about you? Every time I do one, you'd think by now I'd get used to it, but I don't. It still bothers me. Every time I do a funeral, it affects me. Notice what it says. Affliction shall not rise again the second time. This is the reason why God is taking so much time to make sure that all questions are answered. You know, each night we take up questions. And believe me, I do my best to try to make sure that all the questions that come in, we answer. Because you probably had a reason for asking it. And I want to clarify it in your mind so that you don't have to ask it again, right? And this is what God does. I don't know what's going on up in heaven. I don't have privy to that uh, book of life. I don't know whose name is in it. I haven't peeked in it. And I don't know what deeds are being written down and what aren't. We do know that records are kept. I don't know if they keep manuscripts or if they, they have a book like you have or if they put it on computers. Maybe they have tablets that they write. I don't know what they've got up there. But all I know is there's some record-keeping device, you see. And that record-keeping device is called the books. The books are opened. And it's out of these that we will be judged, which is fair. You should be judged by the law, right? And the law is for our protection. Notice, affliction shall not arise the second time. God wants the questions answered so that we don't get another devil coming up when this one's gone. You see, all around the world, you can just imagine what it would be like in the time when the world is desolate, when the wicked are just laying as fertilizer on the ground. Well, you can imagine what it might be like for the devil. It must be a very unpleasant place for him. It's going to be dark. It's going to be very unpleasant. And in Ezekiel 18.32, it tells us, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. He does not want us to face the thousand years in a desolate earth. He wants us in that thousand year period to be with him. And the eternity that follows when that thousand years is over, he wants us to be with him. But yet, you know, there's a strange text in the Bible. Look at Isaiah 28, 21. And it's, I don't have a slide for it, but if you open to Isaiah 28, 21, I'd like somebody to read it to me. Somebody with a good, loud voice. Isaiah 28, 21. Go ahead. Nice and loud. I'm being recorded, but you're not, so you have to speak loud. For the Lord will rise up as a mount Terezim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeah, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. His unusual act. Notice that. The old King James calls it his strange act. What is God's strange act? Well, let me put it this way. I'm right-handed. I love my right hand. You know, I, I do a lot of things with it. I write and whatever else. I really love my right hand. But you know, if I got a cut in my right hand and it turned into gangrene and the infection started to work its way up my arm moving toward my heart, as much as I love my right arm, I would be begging the doctor to cut it off 
so that the body would live. You see? Even though I love my arm, I have to cut it off to save the rest. So it is with God. How can a God of love, a God who who loves mercy, how could a God who, who wants us to be saved actually have to destroy the wicked? He has to do it to keep sin from rising up again. He has to do it justly to save the rest of the universe, the rest of creation. It's not because he wants to. I once had a preacher. He and I were talking about the end times. And I said, I can just imagine when God has to destroy Satan, I can imagine that that hurts him. When he has to destroy the wicked, he may be wiping away the tears of everybody else, but I think that there's a tear in God's eye because that's still one of his created being. And this preacher said to me, oh no, he said, I don't believe that. He says, God laughs at the destruction of the wicked. And when he said that, I looked at him, I said, that's not the same character of God that I know. I think it hurts God to destroy the wicked. Just like it may hurt me to cut off my arm. I'll never have another right arm again. And it will cripple me not to have it. But yes, I had to do it to save the rest. My friends, this is the love of God. When it says there in Isaiah, his strange act or his unusual act, It's saying that God has given them every opportunity to repent. But now he has to let them have what they want. Satan would rather go out of existence than to spend cruel and unusual punishment in an eternal heaven where he can't get into trouble. And God grants his request. Yes, my friends, God is a God of love. But then again, doesn't it say in the scripture in about this flame that the devil goes out and deceives people? We, we talked about that. But doesn't it also say in the word of God, it uses the word forever. Now, doesn't that mean without ending that the wicked are burning forever and ever? Well, let me put it this way. On a Friday evening, or a Friday afternoon, when I go to the market, let's say I go to Walmart, and I say to my wife, oh man, I've got an appointment in in 10 minutes. I'll be right out. You wait in the car. You go in Walmart, and you try to buy one item. Go in and buy a pack of gum, and try to get out of there in 10 minutes. You get in this big, long line, And you wait, and you wait, and you know, you're all very patient. You wait, and finally, when you get out to the car, my wife says, I thought you were only going to be 10 minutes. What took you so long? And you say, oh, man, I was in that line forever. You see, that is actually the biblical meaning of the word. The word forever is an unspecified period of time. What does it actually mean? It means until life lasts. That's really what it means. And for the righteous who have received the gift of immortality, their forever is unending. But for those who are burned in the fire, how long is their forever? As long as it takes for them to be consumed. Now let's check that out a minute just to make sure I'm not bending that out of shape. You can check in your scriptures. In 1 Samuel, the first chapter, verse 22. 1 Samuel one twenty-two. Here it talks about Hannah. And Hannah had a little boy by the name of Samuel, which she brought to the temple for Levi to raise. And in the temple, she dedicates him 
to the Lord. And she says he will, and if you look at verse 28, it says that he will be dedicated to the Lord as a priest forever. Well, you know, Samuel's dead. He's still not serving as a priest, you see. And then what about Exodus 21? If a Hebrew slave who had the opportunity to be free, but he didn't want to go free, he'd go over and his master would take his earlobe and punch a hole in it. This is piercing your ears. (laughs) He went over and punched a hole in it. And what did that mean? That he would be a slave forever to that man. He was going to be perpetually a slave to that man. Well, the thing is, that slave died. Is he still a slave to that, that master? No. Let's look at another experience. Sodom and Gomorrah. It says in Second Peter 2.6 that Sodom and Gomorrah were turned into ashes. But yet it talks about the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah going up forever. Well, you know, folks, I went swimming. I can't say swimming. I went floating in the Dead Sea. Sodom and Gomorrah are supposed to be down in that Dead Sea somewhere. And I looked all around. I didn't see any smoke coming out of that water. You see. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire. That fire went up until everything was consumed. You see. And then the fire went out. Now, you may think unquenchable fire. Anybody a fireman in here? I guess not. What is an unquenchable fire? It's not a fire that can't go out. It's a fire that can't be put out. You see. There are some fires that are just so hot, it seems like the more water they throw on it, it's like throwing gasoline on it. They can't put it out. That's an unquenchable fire. A fireman will tell you that. So what do they do? They try to contain it by making all the buildings around it wet. And then they sit back and they let it burn till it runs out of fuel. It may be an unquenchable fire, but it will go out when it runs out of fuel. And so it is with the hellfire. When all the wickedness is burned up, all the garbage in the garbage dump is burned up, it will run out of fuel. And Satan, of course, will be the last one. His wickedness is so great, he will burn day and night until it is all consumed. Outside the city of Jerusalem, not only was it the Valley of Hinnom, a place for the wicked to be burned up, it became a symbol of what would happen to those who chose not to follow the Lord. It has come down through the ages to mean that. Jesus and his disciples understood that. He understood also about Lot and his wife. As Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed up, she turned around to look at the fire and became a pillar of salt. He was told not to look back. But you know, even in Lot's day, the city stopped burning. When Jesus talked to his disciples, he talked about at the end days. God's word tells us that It's not the miracles that we need to look to. It's to the word of God to know what end times are like. It's to God's word that we are to listen. Because the devil will come doing miracles. And we need to be careful that we are not deceived and led astray. What God wants is a converted heart. He wants a converted heart, not a foxhole Christian. Oh, I see this miracle, I'll repent. And as soon as it's over, we say, oh, well, I'll go back to life as usual. You notice that when the Twin Towers came down in New York City, churches were filled all over the country. People became very religious. And then as it wore off, they drained back out again. This isn't what God wants. 
Tonight, he wants men and women who are committed to him. They are committed to the Lord, the one who came to die for them. Jesus Christ came to suffer and to die so that you won't have to die the second death. He not only died the first death, the physical death, but when he was on that cross, he literally felt the Tartarus experience. He literally felt being separated from his father. He experienced what the sinner would experience if he had not given it to Christ. Eternal separation from the Father. That's what was the pain and the agony. It wasn't the thorns and the nails that killed Jesus. What killed Jesus was a broken heart, thinking of of being forever separated from his Father. That's what killed him. That's the second death. And Jesus took that. He, he was treated as we deserved so that we may be treated as he deserved. My friends, he died for you that you may be treated as he should have been treated. And as it says in 1 John five twelve, he who has the Son has life. If you have Jesus Christ tonight, you have eternal life. Jesus hasn't come back yet, but you have the promise of eternal life. You have the deed. When Jesus comes back, you take possession. You see, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. As we look at the road before us, which way will you choose? The road to life or the road that leads to eternal destruction. Jesus tonight knocks at the heart of every soul. In this picture, you see that he wants to come in, but who has to open the door? We have to open the door from the inside to let him come in. Tonight, I'd like to invite you and challenge you, if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your heart or your life, to be your Savior. I invite you to do that tonight. And I invite you also to ask him to make your life a life that will properly represent his character. We are saved by our faith through him because we can't do it alone. How many of you want to have Christ in your life? By the grace of God, Invite him in, and he will come in and dwell with you. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Lord, we thank you that we have a righteous God, a loving God, who will come into our hearts when we ask. We need to first accept the salvation that you offer us. Secondly, we need to believe that your word is true and that indeed you do what you say you will do. And then thirdly, Lord, we need to claim the promises. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. You promised to send him to us. Help us, Lord, to be submissive to him that he may guide us and direct us into all truth. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen.